0: What's up, church? How's everyone doing tonight? Awesome, awesome. So it is Flag Day. Andre, why don't you stand up for everybody right here and represent, okay? (laughs) Yeah. And um, it's an awesome day to reflect and appreciate the wonderful republic that we live in, the most unique and amazing country in the world, represented by uh, Old Glory. And um, I think today's topic in the second week of this apologetic series, is apropos for Flag Day. uh, Because absolute truth, absolute morality, and the connection with unalienable rights and freedom was something that was foundational for the founders and the framers of the Constitution. And so as we sit here today and we analyze the climate, the intellectual climate, uh, in, our, in our great nation, uh, it's quite different. It's quite different than it used to be in terms of respect for natural law, founding principles, objective truth you might call it, uh, and objective morality. Anybody who proposes that there is such a thing as absolute truth these days is seen as reactionary and Neanderthal and part of a dead age. And truth these days is relative. Uh, Frederick Nietzsche uh, said, uh, "A great philosopher of uh, uh, a couple centuries ago said um, that there is many eyes, so that there is many truths. A perspectivism. Everybody has their own truth. And at the end of the day, if that is indeed the case." it leads and it boils down to a very scary situation. It may seem compassionate to say that everybody's truth is equal. It may seem tolerant to say that morality is dependent on the culture, and no one culture is better than another culture, and every culture can assert their own morality, every person can have their own idea of right and wrong, and There isn't any, who are you to judge? It may seem compassionate. In days where it is worse to judge evil than to do evil. Let me say that again. We live in days when it is worse to judge evil than to do evil. The tolerance for wickedness in society today, the tolerance for absolute, Perversity. The tolerance for evil is past the glass ceiling. The threshold is so high for just downright wickedness. And how, as the people of God, do we address a culture like that? What argument, what word do we have for such a culture? This institutionalized secularism, this institutionalized relativism, liberalism, leftism, give it whatever name you want, has reached into the highest seats of power. It now controls Washington for the most part. It now controls academia for the most part. It has squirreled itself into all of the bureaucracies. It has squirreled itself into Hollywood. It influences the shows that we watch. It controls the day. What word are we? Now the marginalized, right-wing Christians. The the minority of a past age. the, The ones who haven't evolved enough to become part of the new progressive era, what word can we speak to them? What power do we have to speak it? There's a story in 1989. Um, This is the year that the Soviet Union fell. And the story is, uh, it's, it's it's a story of the Velvet Revolutionaries. And this was a group of Czechoslovakian dissidents who was who were facing down the power of the Soviet Union facing down the iron curtain and in Czechoslovakia a nation a satellite nation of the old Soviet Union that had been, that had been oppressed for so long there was no possible way that they could have used military power to do anything to gain their freedom There was no possible way. Just like the Christian church today in America, it seems like we have lost all of the ways, the inroads that we once had when we gave the intellectual game to the secularists. It's like the Soviet Union to this group of velvet revolutionaries in Czechoslovakia is kind of similar to... The Christian Church today, the people of God today, and the establishment, the secularist establishment in the United States of America. And so a funny thing happened in 1989, the year the Soviet Union fell, the um, Velvet revolutionaries, they began to meet, and um, I believe the, the name of the leader the, the, uh, was uh, Vslav Harvel, I think I pronounced that correct And he would hold these giant rallies. And, I mean, just packed out rallies, thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of, um, of these dissidents in, in, in Prague. And, and they would meet together, and instead of using force against the Soviet Union, which, is, which would have been ridiculous, they used the weapon of truth. They purposed in their hearts that they would expose the lies and the propaganda of the Soviet Union, to a listening world. They would identify as the people of truth. And they came up with a slogan, truth prevails for those that live in truth. Truth prevails for those that live in truth. We are not like them in the fact that they are people of propaganda. The ends justify the means. Anything to build our utopia, however many people have to die, however many lies have to be told. And the craziest thing happened. They won. 1989, the Soviet Union fell and movements like this that exposed the Soviet Union for what it was, a regime of lies, built on secularism, built on humanism, the idea that man is at the center, the idea that there is no God, an atheistic governmental structure. When the world hears truth, when people hear truth, it resonates. It resonates. We are created in such a way where we know deep inside that our rights, that the rights that we have as human beings don't depend on a council of men or women or a council of human beings, but rather they come from God. There is an absolute truth. There is an absolute morality. And without acknowledging those two things, you will never have freedom. You can never have true freedom. If you do not acknowledge the fact that there is an absolute truth, that there is an absolute true way to live, a true morality, that metaphysical concepts, when I say the word metaphysical, it means non-physical, not pertaining to a podium, uh, such as love, justice, they exist in an absolute form. And we all aspire to them in our hearts as human beings. They exist. And when we suppress that truth, as we're going to see in Romans 1, as as we suppress that truth as human beings, humanity is stripped away. And that's the big paradox, isn't it? The humanists, the secular humanists, the ones that put man on the throne, end up stripping humanity away. Isn't it interesting how God creates it? Isn't it interesting? It's the law of the created order. When you exalt man above God, then all of a sudden man's rights crumble. And its might makes right. And its might makes right. And that's why this argument that we're going to study today, the moral law argument, the argument from absolutes, there is really no difference between the argument for absolute truth and the moral law argument besides the way they're presented. We're going to go over them both. That's why this this argument is so persuasive. Because nobody, nobody wants their rights dependent on a council of whoever the strongest human beings are or human being is that rises to power and can dictate their situation regardless of if they feel, uh, uh, if, if, if their idea of human rights may differ from somebody else's idea of human rights. They want, everybody, we all want our rights. We all want our rights to be based on an absolute standard. Because it's set in everybody's heart. It is set in everybody's heart. Jeremiah thirty three twenty five says, Thus says the Lord, If my covenant is not with day and night, and if I have not appointed, and if I had not appointed the ordinances, laws of heaven and earth, that scripture is taken by some in the scientific fields. Uh, to mean simply uh, the, the natural laws in terms of uh, uh, the physical laws, uh, uh, gravity, electromagnetism, and so on and so forth. But it also is an appeal to natural law. There are certain things that we know are completely right, and there are certain things that we have an iner- inherent knowledge are completely wrong. Romans one 18 through 18-20, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the, all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from that which is made, has been made, so people are without excuse. God's revelation through the created order. Next week, we're going to be going over some specific scientific evidences for the existence of God. As a non-scientist, I'm still allowed to do that, cite my sources. We're going over some evidences in history, including the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God's made it clear out there, but he's also made it clear in here. He's also gave us our conscience as a, wit- as a witness. Let me ask you something. Does it make sense? Who here has a mind? Okay? Who here has a mind? Does it make sense that the mind, consciousness, ability to contemplate oneself, ability to evaluate one, one's actions, self-consciousness, does it make sense that that sort of thing could arise from unconsciousness. Materialism. Does that make sense? That's natural law. We all know it to be true. It's self-evident. It's self-evident. Though there may be elaborate stories out there that have, been, that have convinced very, 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 very sophisticated intellectual minds otherwise such as matter, energy, space, and time, come into existence from no prior existing material with no mind before it. And after 13.7 billion years, uh, all of a sudden, after rocks have been rained on, life just spontaneously appears. This life somehow evolves with no direction whatsoever into the form that we have today. And then, boom, the rocks are now contemplating themselves and thinking about things like good and evil. Who submits to that? When you break it down in a simple way, when you break it down, it may seem patronizing, but when you break it down in a simple way, you realize how ridiculous it is. Romans 1, 18 through 20, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. Professing themselves to become wise, Paul says, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And glorified the creation instead of the creator who is blessed forever. We're products of the creation. Well, if that's the case, then there is no grounds for absolute truth. There is no grounds for absolute morality. There is no appeal to any kind of standard of objective beauty. You can't say something's objectively beautiful. All you have is your opinion. In which case... When you compliment somebody, if I come from a worldview that doesn't respect absolute truth, absolute beauty, and I compliment you on something being very beautiful about something that you did, a presentation that you did, your physical appearance, the meat of that compliment is 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 degraded a little bit. It's, it's a little bit rotten, isn't it? It's not based on anything absolute, it's just my opinion. And who's to say my opinion's better than anybody else's opinion? I have nothing to appeal to. Judgments are completely arbitrary. Judgments are arbitrary. There's no law. There's no code. What does it matter? The ones who are completely honest with themselves in this worldview, like Jean-Paul Sartre, um, in in the 1940s, atheistic philosopher. Um, would tell you that since God does not exist, everything is permissible. Everything is permissible. Those are the people that are honest about it. Nietzsche, those kind of people. The, the, the philosophy that created the Third Reich, that worldview. It's only honest when it's presented in the form of absolute relativism. And here is the catch. Stay with me. Can you have an absolute relativism? It's a self-contradictory proposition. There are no such things as absolute. There's no absolute truth. Are you absolutely sure about that? Are you absolutely? It's that simple to dissect this worldview. Yet it is so ingrained in the high seats of power. You want to see an example? I wasn't going to lead with this. This gets me in a bad mood. Um, man, okay. Uh, Obamacare, highly unpopular law. Lots of people have lost their health care. It's a disaster. Um, contributing all the numbers that it was proposed on was, were just absolute falsity, absolute lie. lies, bold faced lies. Boldface, like you. If you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. Sure. Did you, you guys see the speech where the, the president actually uh, tried to walk that back and, and said, if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor, if his services are covered by the plan or whatever. If 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 he's an Obamacare approved doctor. Um, There was a day when the American media would have railed against this kind of deception. Silence. Silence. As it just went through. Regardless of your opinion on Obamacare, you know how I feel, regardless of your personal opinion on Obamacare, it could be the greatest thing in the world. It was passed by deception. Here is the here is the architect of Obamacare. His name is Jonathan Gruber, MIT professor. This is the attitude that's in the high seats of power. I'm sharing this with you not to make a political point, but to make a worldview point. This is the guy that sits at the, at the right hand of power, as in all the major councils, influences the architecture of the law, Obamacare. It's 2,800 pages or however, however many. He, he's, he's, he's highly involved. Jonathan Gruber, M- MIT professor, professor, um, He taught this several times. Here are his words. This bill was written in a tortured way to make make sure CBO did not score the mandate as taxes. If CBO scored the mandate as taxes, the bill dies. Okay, so it's written to do that. In terms of risk-rated subsidies, if you had a law which said that healthy people are going to pay in, you made explicit, in other words, you told the truth, That healthy people would pay in, sick people would get money, it would not have passed. Lack of transparency is a huge political advantage. And basically, call it the stupidity of the American voter or whatever, but basically, that was really critical for this thing to pass. And he said it. I was going to play it. I couldn't. He said it with a smirk. The stupidity of the American voter, lack of transparency is a huge advantage. It's a huge advantage. Listen, plebes, What we say goes. It's our truth now. We're in power. I'd rather have this law than not. So if I have to lie about it, so be it. So be it. The ends justify the means. A left-wing example, no doubt. But we as people of truth, does that offend you? Does that offend you that you're treated like that? Regardless of the way that you think. You you could benefit off Obamacare. Obamacare could have been great for you personally. Of course, the law has helped some people. It's hurt more people than it helped, and it's going to crush our country financially. However, However, if it benefited you, are you still angry that that's the way they see us? And they believe that it's okay to lie to us? and they believe that truth doesn't matter whatsoever anymore, this is the attitude in the universities. This is the attitude in the high seats of government. And let me tell you, just like the Velvet Revolutionaries went against the Soviet Union, we have to be bold with the message of truth. It means calling out our own people. Not just our enemies, or who we perceive to be our enemies politically. Look, we have to love them enough to tell them the truth. We have to love God's presentation of, of the church as the body of truth to the world. Through Christ, as Christ is the head, to be able to be faithful to this message of truth. And it's hard. It's easy to just to compromise. Oh, that's political. That's political. We have to call out those examples. We have to, in a way that's very clear, show why it's so important. To to somebody who sides with the the liberal agenda, would they like it if a conservative were up there just lying about certain things that affected their life? Of course not. Everybody wants there to be a standard of truth. And most of us are on the conservative side, but would we stand for it if there was a conservative example of deceit to pass laws in our republic? No. We'd speak out against it the same way. We, we, we would have to commit to that. I taught a message, um, I believe it was on a Wednesday night, called Secular Humanism Changing Truth, Subjective Morality, and Man Given Freedom or the short title is Down With Man's Kingdom. I I encourage you, if you haven't watched that yet, go back and take a look at it if you really want to know what secular humanism is about. But the short definition of secular humanism is man is at the center, man decides, everything is relative, and the, the, the logical outcome is the most powerful will set the rules. All right? We have a different view. A biblical view of truth, and I think that there, the contrast of those two worldviews when it comes to truth, the importance of truth, the importance of truth specifically, is nowhere more brightly made in Scripture than Jesus' first encounter, Jesus' encounter uh, with Pontius Pilate. John 1833 through 38, if you want to go there. And Pontius Pilate was, a, was a appointed Roman governor in the, area, in, the, in, in the province of Judea, in the Roman Empire. And this is obviously where, uh, where Jerusalem was, and it was where the first century Jews were. It was obviously where Jesus was, was preaching and his ministry was taking place. It was a very, very volatile uh, area of, of the Roman Empire. And the governor in this area, the ones who would, who, who would be put in charge by Rome, to rule over these certain areas were were their first their first goal was to keep the peace something called the pax romana uh, it was a peace throughout the roman empire that was kept by force or by coercion or whatever they didn't rome hated these outbursts in far corners of their empire and there was nowhere where more of these annoying outbursts to rome would happen than in judea where False messiahs would come up and, and, and claim to be the king of Israel and try to overthrow the Romans. And so when Jesus is being presented before uh, Pontius Pilate, um, you can imagine that, that, that Pilate's looking at him and he's trying to discern whether Jesus is a threat, whether he is a threat like Um, like we'd see later in the Bar Kokhba revolt, or the early uh, uh, Maccabean revolts? Is he a threat to the political order? That's what Pilate is trying to determine. Verse 33, John 18, And Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, Are you king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this? Or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, I am a Jew. Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Verse 36. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? And he looked at Jesus. He said, you're no threat at all. Look at you. You're a a philosopher. You're a... Kind of strange theologian, maybe. You're the king of truth. You're no threat to me. Ah, why would they want to kill him? Oh, maybe even, maybe kill, if I could convince them not to kill him, maybe there wouldn't be any uprising whatsoever. Let me just try to squash this. This is ridiculous. This guy doesn't need to die. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And then he said to him and then he said this. He went out to the Jews and said, "I find no fault in him at all. Don't worry about it. He's you told us he was a, he's he was a king. He's trying to he's trying to take the throne here. He's a threat to Rome." He's not a threat to Rome. He's sitting here talking about truth. He's talking about truth. Here's the paradox. Pilate was only concerned about power. He was concerned about his seat. He was concerned about manipulation. He was concerned about going about his own way. Not rocking the boat. Pax Romana, keep the peace at all costs. I'm gonna get mine. That was that was Pilate. However, truth is the ultimate threat to that attitude. It's the ultimate threat. That kingdom's going down. That kingdom is dead already. He was so temporal, Pilate was, so concerned about the earthly, so detached from the moral law and the moral code that he did not want to hear or didn't even care about the message of truth or the people of truth. And at the end, that's the rock that smashes it all is the truth. Is the truth. Find no fault in him at all. The biblical definition of truth. In the Old Testament, the word is emet. It appears 127 times. It means, in the Old Testament, it means firmness, faithfulness, and truth. Sureness, reliability, stability, continuance, faithfulness, reliableness, and of course, truth. Those are the forms of the word emet in the Old Testament. Notice that, the the, the continuance, stability, reliability. The people of truth, as people of truth, we have that to present. The world's views views of truth, they change. They evolve. Look at these politicians. Oh, marriage is between a man and a woman. Four years later, oh, well... Uh, marriage is between anybody that loves each other. Uh, Four years later, uh, it doesn't matter if you're a boy, a girl, uh, there's no such thing as race anymore. Uh, You know, everything just disintegrates. There's no reliability. Yeah, a certain group may be uh, appeased and placated and you may be able to pander to votes one way or another and, 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 and achieve a temporary measure of power. But in the end... It will collapse. You can't live like that. You can't live like that. Go crazy. New Testament. Aletheia, 110 times it appears. You think the truth is important in the scriptures? 110 times retains the Old Old Testament definition almost exactly, which is very unique for a Greek word to do. There's usually different nuances and shades of meaning. But it's used... In the New Testament, objectively and subjectively. Objectively meaning, uh, obviously, uh, in a way that appeals to an absolute standard, and subjectively in a way that uh, appeals to the individual, to the individual separately and feelings. And so when it's used objectively, it is true in any matter under consideration in the New Testament. Truth is true no matter what the culture says no matter what the teachers at the time say. say. And this is presented in the New Testament throughout the writings of Paul and the apostles and the writers of the Gospels. This is presented in the New Testament against the superstitions of the pagans and the false ideas of the Jews, specifically about what the Messiah uh, came to do and about what the role of the law was. Truth. Truth. Unchanging. Unchanging. It's true in things pertaining to God and the duties of man. Subjectively, truth is personal excellence. In the New Testament, we see this. The candor of mind which is free from affection, pretense, simulation, falsehood, and deceit. That's subjective. Yes, it's, it's, a subject, it's a way that I look at you as an individual and determine what qualities I discern. It's that level of judgment where I see this beauty of character. I aspire to it. That's truth. That's truth. In short, the way the Bible presents truth relates to the philosophical presence of, uh, presentation of truth called the correspondence theory of truth. The correspondence theory of truth. The correspondence theory of truth. What we believe or say (coughs) is true if it corresponds to the way things actually are. The correspondence theory of truth. What we say or believe is true if it corresponds to the way things are. Well, how are things? How are things? (laughs) Nice. They're beautiful. <laughs> They're going to get better. It's going to get better. Because of you, everything's going to be better. We, you, you're going you're gonna to get them. All right, look. Um, truth, what is the way things when I say it, it metaphysically, ultimately, truth is personal. Because ultimate reality is a person. The thing that's the furthest back is not a thing at all, it's a person. Ultimate reality, wrap your heads around this. Ultimate reality, the place that matter, energy, space, and time came out from. Let there be. Barak, created from no prior existing materials. Ultimate reality is not an impersonal place. It's not we can't look at the universe and make a reference point to it. It's a person. It's a limitless person. God. That is the way things are at the end of the day. The flower fades, the grass withers. At the end of the day, God's word is incarnate in Jesus. His presentation of ultimate reality is incarnate in Jesus. And Jesus speaks this way about himself. Thomas said to him, John 14, 6, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus says to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Truth is a person. There is this absolute truth that we have acknowledged in our hearts, to be real. That everybody, whether they admit it or not, knows that there's an absolute moral code, that absolutes do exist. It's philosophically sound. It's experientially sound. Even people who say that there's no such thing as real justice as a metaphysical concept always say things like, well, that's not fair. Well, he's not being loving to me. We cannot live the relativistic worldview. Because at the end of the day, what underlines reality, what gives us truth, is the heart of the ultimate person, the Father. He is the truth. Manifested in the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, as the truth the way the truth and the life back to the father the whole story of the bible creation fall then everything from fall on to restore connection to the father who am i why do i exist why do i do these things that are wrong that i know should be that i know i shouldn't do why do the things that i aspire to do I don't do these things. Why do I have these aspirations? The answer. Where am I going? Jesus. Jesus is the word. The solution to all of that. He is the presentation of the truth. His finished work makes it possible for us to relink with the Father. Relink with the absolute reality that is the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes through the Father except through me, ultimate reality. There's a reason why in Exodus three thirteen through 14, when Moses said to God, indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, what's his name? Who shall I say? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. There's nothing further back. I am the truth. I am ultimate reality. I am who I am thus you shall say to the children of Israel I am has sent you to me I am has I am has sent me to you I am and there's something so so mysteriously comforting about the fact that the voice of ultimate reality, all the answers to life's questions, all the answers to life's hurts, and, and, and everything that we go through as, as people in, in this fallen world, that the source of it all is personal and aggressive in making himself known and aggressively pursuing the fallen race, aggressively pursuing us. I am. You can't get further back. The thing that's the furthest back is God. He is the furthest back. Whenever you hear the, uh, if you've ever, um, if an atheist or an agnostic or skeptic of any persuasion has ever told you, well, then who created God? Who created God? You respond to them, whatever created time is not bound by time. The word created itself denotes a beginning in time. Created. It had to happen at a, at a singular point or a singular event. That would mean there would have to be something fur, further back. Since we know time is a physical property, since we know time is a physical property, the creator of time is not bound by it and does not have to fall into the... He, he's uncreated. He's the uncreated one. He's the furthest thing back. He is the I am. He wrote this natural law on our hearts. Truth is absolute. See, when truth has its origin in God, it's discovered, it's not invented. You don't invent it, you find it. I challenge you to find an example of invented truth. Truth is transcultural. It can be conveyed across different cultures. There are cultures that are inferior to other cultures. There is a reason why people from... Inferior cultures are swarming into America. There is a reason why. It is a lie to say that they should be able to preserve their culture at all cost over here. <coughs> there are truths. Truth, truth pervades culture. Not culture pervading truth. <coughs> Excuse me. Truth is, is unchanging. It can be a, a, a conveyed across time. There is never a point in time where, the, where, where, where molestation of an infant was okay. There's never been a point in time where it was okay to walk into someone's dwelling place and kill everybody in the house for no reason. There's never been a point in time when that's okay. As progressive as it might sound, Truth. Beliefs cannot change a truth statement no matter how sincere a belief may be. It doesn't matter how you believe. It doesn't matter how I believe. If it runs up against a gang of facts, the belief loses. Truth is unaffected by the attitude of the one professing it. Unaffected. I could be the worst person in the world up here. If I'm speaking truth, the truth is unaffected. The truth is unaffected. Though an ad hominem, Latin for to the man attack, may come against me, or though an ad hominem attack may come against you when you're presenting truth, don't defend yourself. Point out the logical fallacy. Say, never mind about me. I could be the worst person in the entire world. Deal with the argument. That's an ad hominem attack to the man. You're not going to the facts. You're going to the man. Obviously, there's something about what was said that doesn't Warrant, that you're trying to uh, build a smokescreen against, use a smokescreen against. All truths are absolute. All truths are absolute. Even relative truths, so-called relative truths, and this is where some apologists may differ. I, I, look, I take the position, all truths are absolute. I could, if I feel cold right now, it's absolutely true that I feel cold. If I feel, if I'm angry... It's absolutely true that I'm angry at that point in time. They're all absolute. They may be relative or less important than something, but all truth, truth itself, the nature and the fabric of truth is absolute, even if it pertains to my personal experience. Okay, let's contrast that with truth that has an origin in man. Relative truth. And as you can see, that, that, that violates the, the, the way that we think. A relative truth. A relative truth. Is there, is there, there's no such thing as absolute truth. Well, you're absolutely sure about that. Anyway, we'll, we'll let them roll with it. Relative truth. Truth is created. It's not discovered. It's a matter of perspective. And each culture individual defines for themselves what the truth is. Sound familiar? Since truth is invented, there is no universal transcultural truth. What's true for a certain culture is not necessarily true for another culture in, term of, in terms of absolute truth. Truth changes. It's inseparably connected to individuals and cultures which con- continually change. So truth per- perpetually changes. I want to know, is there any culture in which the Holocaust would have been okay? Is there any culture? And are there certain things that would be absolutely wrong regardless of if every culture in the world decided, every person on the face of the earth decided that it was right, that it was okay? Are there certain things that are just absolutely wrong? Insofar as whoever decides to reject the fact that they're absolutely wrong, that they would still be absolutely wrong. Since an individual determines truth according to the relativist, truth is affected by the attitude of the one professing it. So, if I change my feeling about the truth, then the truth changes. There can be no such thing as absolute truth. Those are the contrasts. Absolute truth is not knowable. Absolute and objective truth cannot be known since it is built on the shifting foundations of man's perceptions, as each individual's perception is different. Truth cannot be known. Well, how do we discover truth? How do we discover truth? How can we prove that those statements are false? Well, we do so through the application of first principles. First principles. And examples of first principles are, I'll give you two. The law of non-contradiction states that two opposite statements cannot both be true at the same time in the same sense. And the law of the excluded middle states that something is either, is either is or it is not. There is no third alternative. There is no middle ground. So the law of non-contradiction and the law of the excluded middle. So here's how you apply the law of non-contradiction to someone that says all religions are the same and basically teach the same thing. Okay? If I believe as a Christian okay, that Jesus Christ was an actual human being, who fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures, the Old Testament messianic scriptures, who died on a literal cross, okay? 32, 33 AD, depending on what your dating is, all right? who was buried physically and then rose from the grave bodily. by God, and if I believe that you need to know that and that you need to believe that and accept it and receive that to receive relinking with the, with the Father. If I believe that, am I also teaching the same thing as a religion, like Islam, that says that Jesus actually didn't die on the cross, a version of the swoon theory. Jesus either did die on the cross or he did not die on the cross. We can have that debate, but we cannot say the law of non-contradiction states that we cannot have them both ways. Who disagrees with that? Who disagrees with that? No one disagrees with that. It's, nobody lives in a way that violates the law of non-contradiction. Nobody could, could function in society or even within their own head while denying a first principle such as the law of non-contradiction. So look for it. Look for it in the interactions that you have with the relativists. Look for it, it as examples in society. You will see the law of non-contradiction being violated. And it's always done in the uh, the presumption of love. It's always been done. It's always being done in the presumption of the the violators of the law of non-contradiction. The perpetuators of foolishness are somehow the most tolerant people in the world. Let me tell you something. The definition of tolerance, it's not... Putting up with everything. It's not having an equal opinion about everything. It's not about loving everything equally. It's about respectful, disagreeing respectfully. Disagreeing and, and giving liberty to people and, and and giving and and making a place in society and loving people and loving and, and helping them out of things that you disagree with. You don't need to tolerate something that you agree with. It's not agreeing with everything. It's disagreeing with grace. It's disagreeing with grace and allowing that individual or that group of individuals their liberty, allowing them their freedom, allowing them their dignity, and trying to reach them. That's what tolerance is. And with that definition of tolerance, can you name me any group of people on the earth? that are more tolerant than Christians. Any group of people more tolerant than Christians. Atheists and their militant attempts against Christianity? How about Islam? How about Islam? There probably is a fatwa out on me if some some, uh, 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 radical uh, Islamic cleric heard me say this just now. A, a, a bounty placed on my head or whatever. Just, just by saying that. You're real tolerant, right? Okay? How about the big uh, um, homosexual agenda that, that walks into bakeries and I demand that you make this cake and violate your religious rights. How about that? That tolerant? But Christianity, in its essence, when it's practiced properly, is the most tolerant, most tolerant mindset, most tolerant worldview on the face of the earth. It says, no, I, I cannot love to sin, but I'm going to love the sinner. Yes, that is sin. I'm not going to force you to stop it unless it's violating somebody else's liberty, in which case I will. Is there any more just application of tolerance than the Christian theistic worldview? I would say no. With two minutes left, I'm going to... Um, going to close. It's Flag Day. I want to read to you a little bit from the Declaration of Independence and what what the founders and framers had in mind for freedom in our society and the basis for why this society was founded and created in the first place. And, And as I read this to you, I want you to contemplate how many secularists in our society today would say that this is unconstitutional with its references to the Creator. Would say the Declaration of Independence is unconstitutional. Because there needs to be this separation between church and state and the references to God. Look, when in the course of human events, when it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, (coughs) that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And to secure these rights... Governments are instituted among men, deriving their just power from the consent of the governed. That whatever form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter it, to abolish it. And to institute a new government laying its foundations on such principles and organizing powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. (coughs) It goes on. And then a list of offenses that were committed by the British crown against the colonists uh, were laid out. And the appeal was, look, you guys violated our natural law rights. Our rights don't come from you. They come from the creator. That's the mindset that made America great. That's the mindset. That's the worldview that made America great. That's the, that's, it ended slavery. It ended slavery. It, it made the most free, beautiful society in the world where capitalism could exist, but it would be constrained by morality. Look, they believed in something called the triangle of first principles. Freedom requires virtue. You can't have a free society where there's no virtue. It'll break down. Virtue requires faith. And faith requires freedom look, if there is no such thing as absolutes, there is no freedom. There is no room to practice faith. For everyone that thinks this is not important to bring into the public square, let me tell you, this is of ultimate importance. If you value faith, if you value other people's right to express their faith, those erosions are happening more and more in the highest seats of power. I feel like I feel like we have a chance. I feel like that as long as we stand on truth, as long as we're willing, as long as each one of us is willing to make the commitment to be bold people of truth, to embody the persona of Jesus when Jesus said that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And to appeal, appeal to the reason behind people's yearning for freedom, yearning for rights. Make them base it on, 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 on something that is, that's temporal if they're not going to appeal to God. I feel that we have a chance. It's going to start from the grassroots up. It's not something that we can vote somebody into power and they're going to fix it all for us, like Pastor Rob made reference to earlier today. But it's going to start from the ground up. We are the people of truth. As long as we identify with the sins of our nation, and as long as we're willing to go out and make a witness, there's still time left. But on the other side of it, if we're apathetic if we don't make our voice known, if we don't practice our civic duty, if we, don't, if we don't boldly confront areas of falsehood in our culture, then look, we don't have a chance. The culture doesn't have a chance. And we, at the end, will be responsible. Thank you very much for your time tonight. I really appreciate you guys. We, we ran out of time for questions, or I ran out of time for questions. I apologize. Um, I'll be out in the back if anybody wants to... Uh, grill me or anything like that, I you know all commerce, all commerce, any atheists in here? I love you, I love you <laughs> yeah <laughs> I think so <laughs> all right, um, let me pray uh, for communion as we as we take communion, I mean imagine that imagine that last Supper, imagine when Jesus is presenting is presenting the bread and the wine and presenting himself as the fulfillment to all of the uh, to all of the sacrificial rites in the Mosaic Law. He's speaking to first century Jews. He's speaking to Torah observant Jews who would take sacrifices to the temple. He is presenting himself to the, fulfill, of the fulfillment of it all as the, as the solution of Genesis 3, as the solution to the curse of sin, of the relinking with the absolute reality, that personal reality that is Father God. And for that to happen, he had to pay the ultimate price. His body had to be broken, and his blood had to, be, had to be shed. So as you come up and take communion, take the bread first, acknowledging Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Take the bread first, the body broken on your behalf, so that your soul could find rest in the Father. And then drink the, drink the cup, take the, take, the, uh, take the cup, the blood of Jesus, Without blood, there can't be remission of sins, the blood of Jesus, which washes away all of our sins. And think about, I try to think about, you know, the sins that I've recently committed, the sins that I'm harboring in my heart right now, and just let the blood of Jesus wash those away so I can be a person of truth, not to my ability to His. Thank you very much for your time. Appreciate it.